good to be with you all this morning. Uh, if you're new to this church or have not had a chance to meet with you, uh, my name is Jason Wong, as Lee mentioned, and I'm a pastoral ministry, here, uh, pastoral ministry intern here at Grace and Peace. Uh, I have the stewardship of bringing God's word to you this morning. We will be, look, we will be looking at Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. Um, the passage can be found on page 504 in the light blue pew Bibles in front of you. Whether you're new to church or been going to church for a long time, I pray that this passage will be edifying to you as it was to me this past week. With that said, let me pray for our time together in the Word of God. Lord Father, um, I thank you for this time to gather, uh, to hear your Word preached. Um, I pray for our hearts and our minds that we may be attentive um, and letting what you have for us, uh, that we may be taught, um, and that we may uh, take heart, take to heart what you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So many of you know that I recently served in the college ministry called Crew, um, and one of the tools that I found helpful in my time with Crew was this tool called Perspective Cards. Um, and Perspective Cards, I, have, I brought them here. Um, and basically, it's a way to start a spiritual conversation with someone. So, for instance, once a week on my college campus in St. Louis, we would either have a table set up or approach students in the student center. And it, I would say something like this. Hey, my name is Jason. I'm with a Christian group on campus called Crew. Um, I have this card activity, uh, and it's a helpful way to discuss life's many questions. Would you like to do that? Depending on how busy or open a student is, they say yes or no. And for the students that say yes, I pull out these cards and I explain how the cards work. Um, so basically, there's five colors for five questions. Um, and for each question, there's a range um, of cards within that color that they can choose from. And for each card, there's a particular answer or perspective cards, or perspective, hence the name, perspective cards. Um, so, for instance, the first question is, what is the nature of God? So they have the option of choosing any of these yellow cards here. Um, so they could choose monotheism, which uh, is this card here and has an explanation. I know it's kind of hard to see, so um, just bear with me. Um, they can choose uh, pantheism, and then it keeps going, and the agnosticism, poly polytheism. Um, and if their card's not there, I just ask them uh, to describe what that card is. Um, now, whenever a student eventually picks a card, I usually ask them how they came to that particular belief, and we talk about it. Um, and what I've found is that if done in a loving way, uh, it's a good and fun way to, have, uh, to get to know a student and ha to have a spiritual conversation with them. But the reason why I bring up this tool is that there's a particular question that it asks that I think pertains to our passage today. And the question is, what do you think is the nature of of humanity. The cards that students could pick are these five gray ones, um, and I'll just go ahead and read those out. Um, so they can choose that humanity is perfect. They can choose humanity is more good than bad. They can choose humanity is more bad than good. Uh, humanity is neutral, meaning they're equally good and bad, um, or that humanity is broken. And all the time that, that I've done, been doing this, I've had all these cards picked at some point. 
Um, but the one that has probably picked the most is humanity is more good than bad. Aside from the usual question that I asked that what led you to this belief, I also ask another question as well. What led you, uh, what do you think your nature is? Don't think about other people or all of humanity this time. Don't think about yourself. Uh, don't, don't think about other people. Um, how would you describe your nature? In my experience, students get a little shocked with that question, but also intrigued. Usually it takes a little longer to answer this time, and I don't blame them. Uh, I think that question is a truly difficult one if you never stop to think about it. It's difficult because I think fundamentally you are now asking, how do you justify yourself? In today's passage, we are confronted with that same question. How do you justify yourself? Whether you be going to church for a long time or simply visiting a church for the first time, I think this is an all-important question that we have to ponder. And it's important because Jesus is making us ponder that question. And we know that because in this passage, he is doing that to the, to the people here. And what we will see in this passage is two people who end up seeing their justification in two different ways. So what I'm going to do is split up this passage into two parts. Um, in the first part, we'll see the extravagant love displayed by a woman. Um, and in the second part, we'll see an explanation of that ex extravagant love. Join me as I read the first four verses, uh, and then I'll lead, uh, lead us through how to understand what is going on. So Luke chapter 7, uh, starting in verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked to eat with him, and he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. In these first four verses, uh, Luke details an event that I think would make us rather uncomfortable or shocked if we were there. It'd be one of those moments where your jaw would drop, at least figuratively. In this event, we see four people present. We see Jesus, we see an unnamed woman, Simon, um, and then a group of bystanders. And this all happens because of an invitation for a meal. A Pharisee named Simon invites Jesus over to his home as a guest. And what Simon would be inviting Jesus to would be something like a dinner party where people could come and go. Maybe another way to see this would be like a neighborhood block party. Now, we aren't told the exact reason for Simon's invitation, um, but we do know from context that Jesus has been making quite a big commotion due to his ministry. Up to this point, Luke has already recorded Jesus doing miraculous miracles and healings and giving profound teachings. Perhaps Simon is genuinely curious about Jesus. Or maybe he was skeptical and was looking for a way to discredit him. We aren't sure if Simon is for, against, or neutral towards Jesus. 
The only thing that we do know is that Jesus knows that there is growing opposition to him out there. In verse 34 of the same chapter, so two verses before I started reading, he says this, um, The Son of Man, which refers to himself, has come eating and drinking, and you, which refers to the Jewish people, say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now we see two things from Jesus' statement. He says he is accused of being both a sinner and a friend of sinners. Both of these things were viewed negatively in Jewish culture. If you were going to be righteous, be righteous and don't associate with the unrighteous. You see, for many Jews, the solution to being a good person was to avoid the people that you thought were bad. But with Jesus, they saw the opposite. He talked, ate, and hung out with sinners. Therefore, they concluded that this made him a sinner too. But now we see Jesus being invited to talk, eat, and hang out with a righteous man within Jewish culture, a Pharisee named Simon. If Jesus were a politician, this would be a good move for his campaign. If you want to be well-liked and popular, uh, Simon would be a person you would want to associate yourself with. He's of the in-crowd, and he'd be a good person to have endorse you. But as we will see, Jesus doesn't go that route. In verse 37, uh, things turn a bit uncomfortable and shocking. Uh, Luke draws our attention to this by saying, behold. Um, and behold is like saying, like, pay attention or look. And what Luke wants us to see is this woman, a woman that is not even named. All we are given is that she is of the city and a sinner. Neither Luke nor any of the people give us a clue of the type of sins that she commits or why is she even labeled this way. Some, some commentators suggest it may be prostitution, um, but in any case, what is clear is that because she is a sinner, that she is unwanted. Luke already presents to us a sharp contrast between Simon and this woman. In verse 36, Simon is introduced as a Pharisee, the spiritual elite of society. But this woman, in verse 37, she is introduced as a sinner, an outcast of Jewish society. Her mere presence would have probably made some people very uncomfortable and wondering what she was going to do. Although no one gives us her name, uh, Luke does record for us what she does, and what she does is rather extraordinary. Let me read verse 38 in the New American Standard Bible Version, uh, since I think it reflects well what the Greek verbs are doing. Um, and it starts like this. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and kept wiping with the hair of her head, and kissing his feet, and anointing them with the perfume. You see, in the Greek, every verb in this, every verb in this verse is in the imperfect tense which means it has ongoing action or continuous action. If you notice in the verse that I just read, it reflected this by adding ing onto every verb in the English. So what is going on is that this unnamed woman is continually weeping, continually wetting, continually wiping, kissing and anointing Jesus' feet. She is so overcome with emotion that the tears won't stop. She has to continually dry Jesus' feet to even apply the, perfect, uh, the expensive perfume 
that she has brought, and she won't stop kissing. It's a powerful scene, right? But what should we make of all this? Based on verse 47, Jesus understands her actions as extravagant love. Those verbs are an expression of love. She is wetting and wiping his feet as a sign of hospitality. She is kissing them as a sign of thankfulness and gratitude. She is anointing them as a sign of honor. The ointment that she brings is most likely the most expensive and valuable thing that she owns. And all this isn't done in front of a crowd. It's a PDA, a public display of affection. And we all know PDAs can make us very uncomfortable. But this woman doesn't care, and Jesus doesn't seem to care either. So when extravagant love takes a hold of someone, they will do almost anything to express it. And that is what we see, but that's what Jesus sees. Love is a peculiar thing to describe. Um, that's because there's some intangibleness to it. And we only know that it exists by the expression of it. And by its expression, we will know where the source of that love is and also how strong it is. We see both of those things most clearly in weddings. One of the most memorable weddings that I've been to was when I was the best man for a college friend of mine. In that wedding, he and his bride pulled out all the stops. They had a full band that traveled the country. Uh, this band had trumpets, trombones, electric guitars, multiple singers. They had an open bar and choice of wine for every guest. The food was extravagant too. Every guest had the pleasure of choosing two different full course meals. I even dressed the part. Since I was part of the wedding party, my attire was not cheap. Everything that I saw from the venue to the guest book, it spoke extravagant. Now I understand not every wedding is that extravagant, nor does every couple have that kind of money. Um, but it was curious, I was curious to see who, uh, what was the average cost of a wedding in America. You know what I found? It was a little over $30,000. You know, that's a price, that's more expensive than my car. That's a nice car. And it's, you know, half of my college tuition. $30,000. Wow. Weddings are extravagant, right? But why? And why do people do it? Well, because of extravagant love. There are two people displaying their extravagant love towards each other. That's what we see here. Although it's not romantic type of love, this unnamed woman is still showing extravagant love to Jesus. All their ex actions are expressive and unashamed. Look at the ointment. It's expensive, and yet she uses it all on Jesus. Most would probably say it was a waste, but would any married couple say their what they spent on their wedding was a waste? I doubt it. They'd probably think it was well worth it, Right? To this unnamed woman, it's worth it too. So for us, we should be wondering, what is compelling this woman to do this to Jesus? Unfortunately, Simon the Pharisee doesn't ask himself this question. He's so blind that he doesn't see extravagant love at all. Instead, he questions with himself if Jesus is even a prophet because he accepts her. Jesus should be rebuking her. So Simon concludes that Jesus isn't a prophet. 
Otherwise, he wouldn't be associating himself with her. She's a sinner. She's not of the in crowd, right? Being a prophet and a friend of sinners, those two things don't go together. And this is where I think we start getting some answers to our original question. How do we justify ourselves? You see, Jesus reads Simon's mind. He knows he's judging her and him. And when he does that, he is justifying himself. Before this dinner party, I knew I was more righteous than this woman. But now, I know I'm more righteous than Jesus. Crazy thing to say, right? Little does Simon know that Jesus knows his thoughts and is about to provide a teaching moment. So now we'll transition into the second part. Um, So I'll read verses 41 through 50, um, and if you will, join me. So verse 41, chapter 7. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. In response to Simon's judgment, Jesus tells Simon a parable. And a parable is basically a hypothetical story, and it usually has a surprising twist for the purpose of teaching something. And how parables work is that the audience is supposed to find themselves within the parable. In the Gospels, we have several parables that Jesus taught. He taught them to the crowds, the Pharisees, and to his disciples. Here we have a rather short one that he gives to Simon. Uh, But its effect is sharp. There's uh, two characters in the parable we see. One has a debt of 500 denarii, and the other one has a debt of 50 denarii. In In those days, a denarii was equivalent to a day's wages. So essentially, one person owed the moneylender a month and a half worth of salary, and the other person owed about two years worth of salary. The difference is significant. However, that's not the surprising part. The surprising part is when both could not pay. When they could not pay, the money lender cancels the debt of both. Then Jesus asks the question, which one of them will love the money lender more? To Simon's credit, he understands the parable. You know, he rightly answers, the one who has a larger debt will have a much larger love. But the jury is still out on whether he was able to discern who he is in the parable. And we know that because Jesus has to explain this further. Jesus says, look at this woman, Simon. Don't you get it? She's the one who recognizes that she has a much larger debt and therefore has much larger love. 
You're the one who sees little debt and therefore has little love. But what debt does this woman have? What debt does Simon have? What does Jesus mean by debt? Well, if you look at verse 47, the debt that this woman has is sin. In the Bible, sin is missing the mark. It's living in a way that is contrary to the, to the way that God designed humanity to live. In the beginning, sin was not there, but when Adam and Eve disobeyed God's command to not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, sin entered the world. So basically, sin wasn't part of the plan, but it's here. It's a reality. Sin corrupts, causes decay, and, and produces death. It is contrary to God, and if God is life, then sin is death. Sin is a cancer, and we all have it. In Romans 5.12, it says this, Sin came into the world through one man, meaning Adam, uh, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Maybe you're still not convinced. You know, my sin, although bad, it's really not that bad. In essence, you're taking the position of Simon. My sin, if I have any at all, isn't as bad as this woman's sin. But here's what I have for you to consider. And I'm borrowing this from my former pastor in Lexington. I was listening to his podcast this past week, and he was explaining proper justice. And he's basically saying there's, there's three ways to understand proper justice. The first being is that proper justice has to match the severity of the offense. So the severity of jaywalking isn't the same as the severity of murder. That makes sense, right? And I think the Bible understands that too. However, there is a problem. The Bible doesn't treat sin at the behavioral level. It treats all offenses at the heart level. Biblically speaking, sin is severe because it looks at the heart. If you look in Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount, he explains. He says anger is murder at the heart level. He says lust is adultery at the heart level. Do we only want pure actions or do we also want a pure heart? So that's the first one. The second one, proper justice matches the frequency of the offense. If I commit thievery multiple times, you better bet I'm in jail longer the third time than the first time. The same with God. But as I said in my first point, the Bible understands sin at the heart level. And if it's at the heart level, how many times do you suppose you commit offenses throughout your lifetime? I know for me, it's countless times, even this morning. I don't even know how many I've committed this morning. So that's the second one. The third one, proper justice takes into account the significance and worth of the offended. If I were to commit a crime against a human, my punishment would be higher than if I stepped on a bug. Who in the case of our sin is the offended party? Who are we hurting with our sin? Well, it's God. And therefore, the justice applied would need to reflect the limitless worth of God. So you see, sin is serious, and it's impossible to get rid of. Contrary to what Simon thinks, we are all in the red. We have a debt to pay, and none of us have the money to pay it. 
So going back to our earlier question, how do you justify yourself? The answer is, you can't. At least on your own, you can't. But what do you mean when you say you can't? Well, what I mean is that we need help. We need to be saved. We need to be rescued. If you look in the parable, you see that the debt has been paid. It's been canceled. But by whom? Like all of us, we should find ourselves in the parable, right? But where is Jesus in the parable? Well, he's the money lender. He's the one that provides the possibility for justification. That is what happened to this woman and why she shows Jesus extravagant love. She had been forgiven. This amazing thing has happened to her. Jesus knew all about her sin. You know, he doesn't deny that she is a sinner. But in addition to recognizing that, he wanted to show her love and show compassion towards her. He knew that sin weighed on her like a ton of bricks. Its guilt and shame was immense, and it was for the whole city to see. Her sin was so much that she is only labeled a sinner in this story. We don't even know her name. Can you imagine having that distinction? That's not the best reputation to have. She had no hope in Jewish society. But Jesus saw her unlike any other person at that party. And what Jesus saw was much more than a sinner. He saw a woman that was created in God's image. She was a a human being stricken by sin, and Jesus desired to save her from that sin. He wanted her humanity to be recovered. And that is the invitation, folks. If you are other than Christian here today, don't you want that? That's Jesus' invitation. Maybe hearing how Jesus accomplished this, is, this forgiveness will show his sincerity. In any offense, there is a penalty, right? We've already discussed that. Sin's penalty is death. Death not only physically, but also spiritually. And that is for eternity. Since we are all broke, only one person is left with the ability to pay. That is Jesus. You know, he didn't have to do it, but fortunately he was willing. He gave up his life, incurred the wrath of God, in order for us to have the possibility of salvation. But Jesus doesn't just return our bank accounts to zero. Uh, He fills it with all the money that he has. Essentially, Jesus trades us bank accounts. So in God's eyes, he no longer sees our unrighteousness, but he sees Jesus' righteousness. Remember when Simon questions if Jesus knows who this woman is? Well, Simon ends up being doubly wrong. He is wrong because Jesus does know who she is. But he's also wrong, again, because she isn't fundamentally a sinner anymore. She's a child of God. And that is Jesus' invitation. If you are a Christian here today, we never graduate from this good news. We need to hear it every day. Otherwise, we will forget our need for it. And I think we can forget it in two ways. The first way being, uh, we will have Simon's voice in our heads. 
And it will go like this. You know, I'm, a pretty, good, I'm pretty good at this Christian life. Sure, I may mess up every now and then, but at least I'm not dot, dot, dot. Just fill in the blank. If that's you, heed Jesus' warning. We're all in endless amounts of debt, and only Jesus can forgive us. And it, forgive us and the made righteous before God. I think in another way, we forget this good news with a different type of voice. It's this voice that says sin's penalty is upon us once again. That guilt and shame is in control again, and we have to bear its weight. That voice stands there accusing us that Jesus does not love us and only sees the sin that we commit. He stands there saying this time, Jesus is going to abandon you. It's as if you were the woman approaching Jesus, and Jesus quickly retracts his feet. He's disgusted and wants nothing to do with you. But friends, I tell you, those are lies. If you have placed faith in Jesus, you are justified before God. Jesus has extravagant love for you and forgives you. He's not going away. If this is you, I encourage you to hear those same words from Jesus to this woman. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Peace. Think about that. Struggling Christian, that condemning voice has no power over you. Jesus has given you peace. Let me pray to conclude our time. Lord Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the extravagant love that he showed this woman. That he canceled her debt, canceled all that she owed, that she forgave her sins. And Father, um, that promise is also for us, that you forgave our sins through Jesus. That when you look at us, you see Jesus' righteousness, not our own unrighteousness. And Father, uh, pray for our hearts, pray for our minds that we are uh, living that out, that we place faith in Jesus, and that we may have peace, knowing that you do love us and will not abandon us. In Jesus' name, amen.